0: There, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organization dedicated to creating a flourishing world. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core capabilities that I believe, and decades of research supports, are essential in creating a flourishing life. So join me as I talk to experts from around the globe about the six M's: mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. They'll share their experiences and insights, together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. So let's get started. Janine Shepard was a former Australian champion skier, headed to the 1988. Calgary Winter Olympics. Instead, she was the victim of an horrific accident on a training bike ride, suffering multiple life-threatening injuries. After almost six months in hospital and struggling to rehabilitate with permanent disabilities, Janine didn't just learn to walk, she chose to fly. Starting flight training in a plaster body cast, she ultimately attained her commercial pilot rating and even taught aerobatics. Told it was unlikely she would ever have children, she's the proud mother of three. Today, Janine Shepherd is an internationally renowned speaker and author of six best selling books. Her inspiring TED talk, A Broken Body Isn't a Broken Person, has garnered over 1.6 million views. Janine spends her time between Wyoming, USA, and Sydney, Australia sharing her message of resilience and transformation. And she's also about to commence some academic studies. Well, hello, Janine, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Oh, hi, Susie, and thanks for having me.
0: I'm really honoured and uh, it's a privilege really to have you here speaking with me today, Janine. And we've come to get to know each other a little over the last... Would it be two years, I would say, possibly? Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I'm going to share the story. I hope you don't mind because <laughs> no. when I, you know, tell people that that I had an opportunity to meet you, I, I tell the story of me running a, a retreat, a resilience retreat at a health retreat, and you turning up to, <laughs> to, to, as a participant. And uh, when I discovered that it was you, that the Janine Shepherd, I sort of <laughs> said to you, what on earth are you doing here? You <laughs> could teach this stuff. So, yeah, so, but I guess I was really excited that you were so um, knowledgeable at the time, two years ago, that you really knew a lot of the science that I was presenting and sharing with the group. But you had so much to offer, so much rich experience to offer in terms of your life story and your life experience, Janine.
1: Well, I had the best of both worlds, didn't I? Because I thought, yeah. wouldn't it be great to go on a retreat? Oh look, Susie Green's there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do both.
0: Oh, no, but it really did help because the participants in the group who I would also say were very privileged to have you there could really see a walking, talking example of resilience <laughs> and, and positive psychology and, and
1: psychology more broadly, I guess I would say. Well It was my privilege to be there, Susie. I so enjoyed it. It was such a fun time.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And now, Janine, you're actually at the beginning or about to commence a PhD.
1: (laughs) I know. I think I'm completely crazy at my age. (laughs) I know. I, I feel, Susie, that I've been studying resilience my entire life. I'm sort of a walking example of a life experiment, so to speak. And I think my before I had, you know, my accident, I had been studying sports science. So it was all about the Mm -hmm. body, you know, how to get optimal performance from my body as an athlete. And, you know, once I had my accident, I realized that it was actually all about the mind. And so I sort of switched track for a while there. And I think I've been studying that my entire life. And of
0: course, today I've invited you on to speak about motivation. But Mm. if we look at the six M's, you could really have presented on any one of those, uh, (laughs) really. But I I, I guess I was particularly interested to get your take on motivation and also uh, given it's possibly going to underlie some of your PhD research as you progress too. So can you tell me what does motivation
1: actually mean to you? Well, I was thinking about this and you know I've always I've never really struggled with motivation and I think the reason for that is I have a very I'm very connected to my strengths and of course we can talk about that because I know the people listening to this will be will will have an understanding of what the strengths are. Yes. And so I've always connected with the things that are a sort of a, I'm going to say this, I heard someone say a hell yes, you know, (laughs) so you know that when you're, you know, really engaged and alive, and that really aligns well with my PhD, of course, because I'm curious, I have a love of learning. So I'm really sort of engaged when I'm studying or learning something new, sort of lights me up. And I've always had a sort of an awareness of what those things are. So I'm wondering, Janine, too, as we're just briefly touching
0: on strengths, whether zest energy and vitality is in your top five. I can't recall, but <laughs> I'm hearing it as you speak. And so I guess I'm also curious about whether that's a trait like that zest and, and that love of life in in many ways is, is trait like. And you've been like that since you were a young person. And that is was what led you into, I guess, uh, being a competitive skier as well. What
1: do you think about that? Well, you know, I've done that VIA test so many times, and I, those those top strengths tend to move around a little bit for mm-hmm. me. Ah, okay. But zest is definitely in there. Yeah. And to me, motivation is having a really clear understanding of your why. Of course, spirituality is is up there for me too, and so I'm very. I have a very you know strong sense of feeling like my life has a purpose, and and that also relates to my accident and my what I call my death experience, and You know, that's a whole other podcast, Susie. Um, But so I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to do. You know, I'll tell you this really funny story. You know, we often, especially when I'm talking to young people, you know, I say, you need to understand what your yes is, your why, not other people's. And we often find ourselves doing what we think we're supposed to do. And that's where we sort of get derailed. And many, many years ago, speaking, a friend that I went to uni with who was a partner in a law firm had asked me to speak on a Friday night at a dinner so I, I went along and I spoke to um, you know there were probably 50 it was a small gathering of young sort of lawyers and so I spoke on this Friday night and then we had a Q&A after and then I sat and had dinner with them anyway on the Monday morning I rang my friend John to say oh I hope everything went well I hope you got some good feedback and he said well you know that young guy you were talking to Scott I think that was his name. Yes. I said, yes. He said, well, he came in this morning and he quit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, that's a likely outcome, isn't it? <laughs> I know. And you know what yeah. he did? He quit and he went off to Europe backpacking. Wow. And uh, I thought, what a great compliment for me. Oh, <laughs> ex- absolutely. You Yeah. Know, to me, he was doing what he thought he was supposed to be doing, what his parents probably wanted him to do, go and get a law degree. But it wasn't his why. It wasn't what he at the deepest level wanted to do. So he went off to discover what that why was. And I think that's for a lot of people, a lot of young people too, we do what we think we're supposed to do. And that's where we get into trouble. That's right. And of course, there are a number of reasons for that, whether that's parental,
0: family or societal reasons. But what you're really speaking to is the research of self-determination theory and the power of intrinsic motivation, which you, through your talk, managed to inspire him to, I guess, perhaps not know exactly what his why was, but to, as you said, go off and be curious and uh, think about it before he actually committed to a course of action. You can't find out. (laughs) Absolutely. And I guess, you know, in the work we've done in schools and POSED, these conversations happen quite a bit in terms of do we or should we be providing the space for young people to have these conversations other than, you know, just otherwise they're just on this track and they're just, as you said, heading down a path that perhaps their, their father or their mother did before them, you know, without some time off to actually think about, you know, what they really want to do. So we've just had a, a little mini blackout here, and uh, we—I guess—we're both reflecting on uh, the benefits of being resilient, so that <laughs> we can just regrouped and and can carry on. If Move you like. on. That's right. Not stressing <laughs> out about it. <laughs> exactly. So before the little blackout happened, we were talking about the power of intrinsic motivation, which is mm. what your story really highlighted. And I'm really curious about intrinsic motivation from your perspective in terms of your competitive skiing when you were working towards the Olympics? Were you always intrinsically motivated or is that impossible to be completely
1: always (laughs) intrinsically motivated? Well, I'm not an expert on that, but I would say that it's probably, as they say, you know, a spectrum. And of course, as an athlete, you're always pushing towards, you know, winning, getting on the podium. And so you'd have to ask, is that intrinsic? Although, Perhaps if you're working towards achievement and you know, working on your strengths, perhaps it is. Who know? I mean, there's there's a spectrum there, I'm not sure. But I think that there has to be to really be intrinsically motivated, I think you have a have to have a fairly high level of sort of self-awareness. Would you agree? Well, you'd think so, although some
0: people, I guess at that far end of the spectrum. You know, would report that they just absolutely love it; that they don't even need to be motivated, if you like, or that their motivation rarely um, waxes and wanes, unless, of course, mm. they're fatigued. Which I think that can certainly, if you're really pushing yourself, can affect mm. your your energy and, and your enthusiasm for it. But um, was that something that you you loved doing? Your skiing,
1: you really, really loved it. Oh yeah, I mean, when you know, you were getting into that whole area of flow now, and yeah, and so. Am I going to pronounce his name? That's it. (laughs) it. So, you know, I love all of, I love his work and you, you know, for me being an athlete, I was always, I've been an athlete since I was, you know, a small child, you know, right through track and field and triathlons and all sorts of sports. So the challenge for me actually is getting into flow because for me, naturally sport was the way that I would get into flow. I mean, I would Run, for example, I could run for hours and just, and I'd get lost. You know, I'd be in that zone. So finding flow in other ways now for me, because physically, I'm actually, you know, a paraplegic. Although I'm walking, so so sport now for me is more challenging. Things are difficult. I have to push more instead of finding it sort of naturally in a state of flow. But I can still get there. I mean, I can still get on a bike and depending where I am, and sort of ride and get into that zone. But to me, I get into flow in other ways now. I mean, I could study for hours and hours could pass and I can sort of get into that zone. So going back to what I said about self-awareness and being intrinsic, I think, and I think that is something that we get, perhaps we get it with age, I'm not sure, but getting to know ourselves really well, to know our strengths, to know, to be really in touch with our values too. That's why I'm yes. such a fan of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, sort of knowing, you know, who do I want to be? What do I want to stand for? And and then you sort of, goals are is important. They're there, but it's not like you have to have that because you realise that they're always moving. You know, it's values of course as you know susie you know you don't tick them off the list no. you know they're just some a way to sort of guide us you know and um sort of a compass in life which i love any sort of flying metaphor <laughs> or, or analogies perhaps. absolutely <laughs> yeah
0: but i guess again i'm curious about when you were actually in hospital after the accident mm. where did that motivational idea come from to not just learn to walk but to fly a plane, which is absolutely, <laughs> I mean, I've been up there once <laughs> and it was scary, but you actually not only learned to fly, you actually taught aerobatics as well, which kind of goes above and beyond. Where did you find yeah. that motivation or where did the, that desire or drive when you were lying there? Yeah. I can't even comprehend how you managed to find that motivation, Janine.
1: Yeah, I look back now and wonder that too. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, I was home at hospital, I was in a wheelchair, you know, trying to use a catheter and being told that, you know, that all the things I did in life had been taken from me by, you know, one speeding driver. And I think I was really searching. I felt this great sense of purpose, you know, with Coming back to my body and surviving this horrific accident, and um, so I sort of thought, well, I'm going to find out what this all is about, yes. and I had this real shift. In a way, it was a gift because. You know, I didn't have to go training anymore. It was like, okay, I've got this clean slate. How am I going to recreate my life? And of course, flying was ridiculous. You know, people thought it was the most ridiculous <laughs> idea. You know, well, shouldn't you learn to walk first? Um, <laughs> but it was this. It was so. It changed my life. It opened my eyes, and it was so exciting and so challenging, but so magnificent that it gave me a reason to get out of bed every morning. And of course, then I, you know, I started studying all these new aviation terms. And I, at first it was, you know, crazy. Nobody thought I'd be able to do it. And probably I had my doubts too, but I had this sort of burning light inside me. This, you know, just kept moving me forward. And I have a love of, of learning, as we said, and curiosity and achievement as well. And so being able to do these things just sort of lit me up. Mm-hmm. And... The funny thing is also there's that sort of sense of mindfulness in that when I started to learn to fly, you know, I didn't take the first lesson thinking, oh, I'm going to become a flying instructor. Right. <laughs> it was just just go for the next lesson. Right. Just, you know, climbing, turning, whatever it was. You know, it was just one, you know, that whole idea of how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. And yeah. so I didn't even know if I'd pass the medical, but it was very much kept me present. And uh, you know, there was it was It's very complex. You know, there was this sense of gratitude, this sense of just aliveness of being able to go off and fly an airplane and just do these tiny little things. And that kept me going.
0: And did you have like, and I guess I'm thinking about the power and techniques of visualization. Did you actually have a vision of yourself flying that was Mm -hmm. there, perhaps even in the back of your mind, even though you were, as you said, just taking one day or one step at a time?
1: Yeah, I'm a ve- I think I'm pretty good at visualizing, which comes from being an athlete. And so right. not just flying, but I used to lie in bed and visualize myself walking. You know, I'd be putting one foot in front of the other. And as we know, the body doesn't know the difference between real and imaginary. And I really think that that has helped mm-hmm. me in my life and helps me today. And there are studies. I think there's growing body of studies that, through
0: the use of visualization uh, for people that have had uh, significant accidents for rehabilitation. Um, so, I mean, again, you've a great example of how that's that's worked for you. But now you've taken on a new challenge, Janine, a PhD, <laughs> perhaps though in uh, you know reference to the significant challenges you've had in your life, this perhaps might not be as big a challenge because it's all about perspective really, but how are you feeling about taking <laughs> on the PhD challenge?
1: Well, it's I have to use all the skills that I've learned, which is just being really present, not thinking, oh my gosh, what am I doing? This is huge because I've had so many people say to me, never do a PhD, it just (laughs) ruins your life. But I found it, you know, exciting and also I'm connected with my, you know, some of the strengths, my strengths of love of learning and curiosity and also giving back. I feel this, you know, the area that of course is resilience and disability and, as I've looked into it, and we've both discussed this, that when you come out of a spinal ward or being in a spinal ward, it's a pretty depressing place to be. It's all about what you can't do. You know, you're in the ward and they're telling you, you'll never, you know, your whole life has changed. You mostly cannot go back and do the things you did before. And, you know, you have a body that doesn't work. You know, you've got to use a catheter. You have all the things they're talking about all the time, you know, constant pain and it can be pretty depressing. And so I thought to myself, imagine back then, if I'd had someone come in and give me Mm. a resilience program based on positive psychology, based on the premise of, let's look at what's right with you. You're still a person with strengths and potential. Yeah, How different would that experience of the spinal ward be? And I thought, well, maybe there's a PhD there. And of course I'd Many many years ago, I did a course on positive psychology coaching, and and from that, I wrote a course, a resilience course based on twelve steps, which were the steps that I used in my life to recover, and and it sort of morphed into this course, and that's really what I'm basing the, my PhD on is this resilience course, and the the twelve steps that I mean it starts with acceptance, it goes right through acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, optimism value strengths hope meaning human connection mindfulness and gratitude and they're all you know very valuable steps that I've that I took in my life when I look back I realize that I've used each of these and still use them actually in my life today mm. and now you uh
0: you've become increasingly aware of the Uh, Science that underpins them, even though you, I guess, discovered them in a variety of ways, I would assume. But now you can see there's some pretty
1: rigorous science that underpins each of those steps, Janine. Oh, there is absolutely there is. I mean, you know, we I know we've spoken about this before, but we've one of the first books I read when I got home from hospital was Viktor Frankl's "Man Search for Meaning," and you know, what's my why? You know, and of course, the first step is acceptance. I've Trained in acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, strengths. Of course, we I love strengths work, values, acceptance and commitment therapy, hope. I'm a great fan of C.R. Snyder's work on on hope. You know, and humor. I mean, that's been so important in my life and is today. I love to laugh. I love to look back, even the funny things that happened in the spinal ward. But one of them, of course, I end with gratitude, and we know that that's probably out of all the steps. There's so much science behind gratitude with uh, Dr. Robert Emmons and the work that he's done and that of course was something that I used in hospital before gratitude even became a thing.
0: (laughs) Wow yeah and that's something that you continue to do to this day.
1: Yeah we have a a ritual actually uh, my husband David and I we sit in the morning we have our coffee together and we talk about what are we grateful for and what are the three things? I mean, but it sort of happens organically. We don't have to sit there and say, well, oh, tick the list off." But and I and I like to think at night. Also, I like to you know think about my day and reflect on it and what went well. Of course, we know that's a great exercise. But even in the hospital, I remember. So I spent almost six months lying flat on my back. And of course, one of my daughters said. the amazing thing about your story is not that you learned to walk or fly, but you laid still for so long. Yes, What a (laughs) challenge. Oh my gosh. And I remember thinking to myself, well, everybody that came in to visit me, I was so grateful. And I made a promise to myself that I would thank everybody and smile and be happy. And I think that I'm certain that that helped me during that time in hospital.
0: Unbelievable, Janine. But I'm assuming, and because you are so familiar with ACT, that you gave yourself that permission, I guess, to sit with those, as I could imagine, very uncomfortable emotions as well that emerged
1: for you at the time. You know, the funny thing is, I I wasn't familiar with ACT when I was in hospital. I mean, I was an athlete; it was all about the body, right? And I really didn't. I just, and I think there's a lot of a lot of my healing, you know, really deep healing happened a long time after my accident, but getting through that hospital time, you know, lying in hospital, Mm. I think gratitude got me through that. Even with my physical injuries, the doctor said to my parents, don't tell her everything because she's not ready for it.
0: Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that's a PhD in itself, isn't it? In terms (laughs) of, um, I mean, the current, as you would know, the current approach is that we don't want to not feel those difficult emotions. But from your experience, you're saying that perhaps you did at some level make a conscious choice to focus on staying as positive and as upbeat as you possibly can, which got you through that most difficult period. And then there's been a period of time when you have, processed perhaps those more difficult emotions over time but gee that's a really interesting
1: research question in itself isn't it? I know and you're right I think Susie because I think with really in sort of intense trauma you can't just take it all on at once you know it's, it's in stages and I think that's really what I did I had to get through that time in hospital and then deal with other emotions much later on and I think you know, I don't think I've had PTSD because I think I've been pretty good at being able to process things, but I'm much better now. It's taken a long, you know, further down the track till I'm able to really appreciate um, what it takes to grieve. And I think that that's a process and I think Mm. I'm still doing it. I think there are times when I give myself permission. Now, I did Kristen Neff's course, which I loved. I love, I love her self-compassion work. And, you know, I'm I'm much better at that now saying, oh, ouch, I'm going to have a day where I just, you know, nurture myself and allow myself to heal. And what's your hope
0: for the PhD research, Janine, is to really try and bring the science of positive psychology into spinal uh, units. Is that
1: what you think? It is. I have a lot of friends. Um, So I'm ambassador for Spinal Cure Australia and one of my good friends, Joan Knott, who has been in she's a high level quadriplegic and has been for probably 30 plus years and you know we talk a lot about this and how much is needed in this space in this you know the psychosocial area that in terms of patients going through recovery and I think that you know around the world we need a protocol so we're looking at this so we're looking at Mm. we're not starting with the deficit model which you know they often do in the past with psychology, yes. um, we're sort of starting on the premise of let's look at what's right with you because spinal cord injury is such a debilitating condition, Yes, life-changing, and often it happens in this sort of sudden unexpected way from an accident. So there is so much to deal with and I think that there's really an area where we can, you know, we know that we're looking at disability in such a different light now with the word ableism, for example. yes. And so we want to say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. And I think that's what I'm looking at. Let's create a protocol so that when people are in hospital, and there's a lot of questions around this, when is the best time to deliver this, you know, things like that, which I'll get to further down the track That's right. um, when we're designing this. But just giving people the best chance to live a life that has meaning so that they can flourish, so that they can connect with their strengths and, live a meaningful life because it's challenging enough. I still recall
0: presenting at the Schizophrenia Fellowship not long after I'd finished my doctoral research. And uh, it was to primarily the family of adult children that they pass through an acute stage. You know, I guess generally it happens in late teens or early 20s. And I had a number of families that came up to me at the end. And I remember one specifically that just said, Wow. If our, we truly believed that if our child had been approached with what he could do rather than what he couldn't do his whole life since this diagnosis, mm. that he'd be in a different space today. And uh, I think it does reflect both psychology and psychiatry's focus on, on deficit historically. But there is a move initially, as you know, POS Psych was a quite a specific field, but we're now starting to see it move into positive clinical psychology, positive psychiatry, and you know, Janine, we've probably had this discussion before. But the aim, I think, into the future is that we we potentially drop the word positive, that we feel that we we don't really need to use it anymore because these fields will have been transformed by that mm. balancing out. But yeah, not just a focus on on deficits as it has been in the past.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's wouldn't it be a wonderful? step that you don't need to say that but I think when you're as a spinal cord patient it's very difficult I mean it's been a challenge for me actually to go back to a spinal ward now Uh because it's a very painful place because it's all about what you can't do it's such a reminder Mm. so in a way this is part of my great sort of circle in my journey that I'm actually going back to the spinal ward in a different light now to offer something that's lack of a better positive <laughs> but yes. to to offer something to other people, and also as a sort of thank you to all of the people that have helped me over the yeah. years. But I know that when I was a patient and I had a social worker and there was, psych- I did, don't even think back then there was a psychologist. I know there was a social mm-hmm. worker. In fact, the social worker there did give me a wonderful exercise, which I've got in my course in forgiveness, which is the second step. And I was so angry at the man that ran me over who was charged with negligent driving and got an $80 fine. And uh, I had all these feelings of anger. So I knew his name. I didn't have an address for him. And she said, right, well, we know now there's such a thing as a forgiveness letter. Yes. But I did. I wrote a letter and all of the reasons why I got all that anger and all the feelings down. And I got mum to post the letter. It just had his name but no address. So I knew it would never, you know, get to him. Yes. But it you know and people often that's one of the things that people mention to me all the time that they struggle with forgiveness and I say well look at it this way it's actually letting go that's all it is yes it's it's not condoning anything it's just saying okay that happened but I want to get on with my life and I realized that those small steps that I took enabled me to sort of let go and say all right now what you know and as long as you're holding on to those feelings of anger and resentment and bitterness, then you're never really going to be able to embrace, you know, the possibilities of what awaits.
0: And I think you've touched on a really important point there that, that those emotions can actually interfere with your motivation to progress. And when I reflect back on working with numerous clients over the years sometimes they've come for a coaching approach in terms of where they want to move to in the future and there are these blockers that come up or obstacles mm. and a lot of them are psychological or emotional in nature and until we address those and and that's at the point where sometimes in the past I've said right I'm putting my counseling or therapy hat on now or I'm actually referring you for therapy Prior to us, because as you can see, we're not going to make progress into the future unless we address these emotional blockers or psychological blockers. And I think that, as you said, hanging on to those emotions um, and then working through that process of forgiveness, which can be a very difficult challenge for people depending on the specific, you know, transgression that has occurred that sometimes requires professional help to have someone work through that process but you could then see that it did free you up emotionally and uh in facing that and in processing that
1: absolutely and it is something that people do struggle with forgiveness and i love i you know i have many people that i love following their teachings i'm a fan of pema chodron's teachings and she talks about being grateful to everyone and You know, when something happens, I had something happen the other day and someone was parked in a disabled spot (laughs) and I had mentioned something and they got really aggressive (sighs) and I realised you know, I sort of, I could feel myself getting triggered. And I actually, I did walk away, but I thought to myself, I'm grateful for him because he showed me that I still have work to do in that area.
0: (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) I know. Yes, our greatest teachers, sometimes the people that irritate us or press our
1: buttons, aren't they? Oh yeah, they are. And so I think as Pema talks about in this one recording, I I listened to over and over again, you know, we have a propensity for certain things you know, what might trigger me, perhaps won't trigger you and vice versa. But, you know, every time we get triggered, it's an opportunity. It's like they say, a seed that comes up, you know, and we get to sort of work with that and we go, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I still, I still have work in that area.
0: Exactly. And in a sense that can, support your motivation, because I know for myself, when it happens, I think, right, I'm, you know, I'm really determined that I'm going to face this. And it's, you know, really step up to the challenge. So it, it can sometimes
1: positively affect our motivation, can't it, for positive change? It is. And, you know, I I realized that I'd walked away because you can't win a fight with a bully. right? No. And so walking away, I know that I didn't end up ruminating for days. I sort of got it off. I, you know, talked to my partner about it and we, you know, I worked through it and I sort of said, thank you. He'd served me. This is great. And I, you know, sort of moved on and I thought, wow, okay, I've made some progress there. This is good.
0: (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And good that you were able to, as you said, debrief with your partner and, and talk about it as well. Mm. So Janine, we could talk all day about motivation, I but <laughs> uh, we're coming uh, towards the end of the interview. But I wanted to ask, as you know, sports, uh, business, I do a lot of work in the corporate setting. Motivation is a really important topic for people to stay engaged uh, mm. in particular. But do you think it is important to teach the skills and there are, there is a large scientific body of evidence, there's 40 years of research on mm. goals and well-being and goal attainment in the psychological literature that's, you know, generally just been sitting there that hasn't been taken out to the general public. Firstly, do you, yeah, how important do you think it is that we teach these skills more widely? But then is there anything specific that you wish mm. the general public knew about motivation?
1: Well, I think there's so much science out there now and so many fun tools that we can use. And I was just thinking, wouldn't would it have been fun if I'd known about VIA when my kids yeah. were at school? You know, wouldn't it be a fun exercise to say to parents to go get your kids to do the VIA free test, you know, online test and sit down, everyone sit down with their top strengths and talk about it. And I think it's, again, it's about this self-awareness you know this self-knowledge of you know what what makes me tick you know what's my why what am I good at and we talked about this in your course strength spotting you know yes. sitting around as a family and saying well I've noticed that you know you're really good at this you know this is when I see you when you're really alive and it would be great if families could sit around the table and and do a strength spotting
0: exactly it's so fun yeah absolutely Janine and uh, as you know here at the Positivity Institute, we're really passionate about getting these scientific skills out to children—the skills of resilience, the skills of mm. well-being—and my hope is that it is more broadly taught at school into the future. So, Janine, is there any specific? Tools that you use to boost your motivation when it wanes, and and what you're going to be relying on with uh, the PhD coming
1: up. <laughs> well, I think you know I have a, a pretty full toolkit. So there's, you know, I pull out things on different days when I need them, and and so there are days when I think, oh, this is my self-compassion day. I'm going to have a day off. I'm going to, you know, soak in a bath because my body's aching. Mm. Or, but there are things that I do every day. You know, I, I have great relationships. I make sure that. You know, I have really quality time with my partner. I exercise every day, you know, because I understand that there are so many benefits to moving. My meditation practice is not so formal anymore. I used to meditate, you know, very strict way every morning, every afternoon. Now I try to, you know, just be mindful whenever I can and just, you know, give thanks. I mean, I think if nothing else, I mean, the practice of gratitude has been probably the most powerful Mm. tool that I've got in my toolkit. But I will just go back to kids for a second because yes. I think this is something I wanted to mention earlier is I think that two of my kids did it and my third one didn't, but they had a gap year. And yes. I think that is a wonderful practice that, you know, we have in Australia where kids get that year off from school where they go and travel my kids worked in camps in America, wow. which they absolutely loved. And it gave them that year, you know, after that formal education where kids are pushed into getting, you know, academic scores and trying to get into uni or whatever it is they want to do with their life. And But they get that time off to just go and explore and think about what they enjoy doing and often come back and completely change. they want to do. I did that. I had a gap year and I did change what I wanted to do at university at the time. So I think that's a really great practice.
0: Particularly if they're equipped with tools like the VIA, the Character Strengths Assessment, or I would also suggest as you've touched on today, values, giving them an Mm. opportunity to really reflect on what matters most or what they want to matter most, as particularly Mm. as they're moving from adolescence into adulthood. So that's great advice, Janine. And thank you again, because you've really managed to weave The six or the the other five M's in addition to motivation, (laughs) which we focused on today, you covered off on the power of mindfulness on motivation, meaning, which is a huge part. That's how we get, I guess, meaningful goals, don't we? Mm. You know, might, the character strengths, mindset and mood and, you know, the things that you've done to boost your mood and all of those other five M's play a big role on motivation, So thank you for for weaving them all together today.
1: Well, thank you for being such a great teacher. I I so enjoy talking and learning from you too, Susie. Oh,
0: thanks, Janine. And finally, if there were one book or a podcast that you might recommend for anyone that's interested in learning more about motivational techniques.
1: I would love every parent to go away and give their child the basic ACT course. Wouldn't that be fun if they could all understand That we have struggles. We all have struggles, and I think the funny thing is, I'm I'm not anti happiness, but sometimes I think that we get caught up in trying to be happy all the time. Yeah. And what is happiness, you know? So, and I think we have a misunderstanding. And I always say, be happy when you're happy, and sad when you're sad. And I think if we understand that all of the emotions serve us, and they're all okay, I think our kids would be a lot better off.
0: And uh, I think the other important aspect of ACT from a motivational perspective is the values and the Mm. opportunity to reflect and get really clear on on what matters most. And then the wonderful techniques that ACT provides in terms of sitting with the discomfort as you move towards a valued goal. So Mm. ACT uh, is a perfect fit with motivation. And thank you so much for highlighting it in a very personal way today, Janine, and would love to have you back again once you're you know, in the midst of your PhD and you're unearthing all this wonderful science that uh, you might like to come back on and share that with me and with the audience. That would be wonderful.
1: Well, thank you. And of course, you're part of it. You've been um, a great mentor to me, Susie. So I absolutely would love to share this journey with you and um, pick your brain. <laughs> oh,
0: perfect.
1: All right. Well, thank
0: you so much, Janine. Take care and we will speak soon. You bet. Have a great day. Bye, Susie very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription podcast series two. And if you'd like to learn more, head to our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au to purchase a copy of my first book for the public, The Positivity Prescription. You can also sign up for our e-news where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode. And remember, life's too short to languish.